Heavenly Father, uh, all good things and every perfect gift comes down from you. Uh, and of course, your word is one of the great, great, great best gifts that you've given us. Um, I, I love in Revelation where Jesus says, uh, he, you know, that the Lord is coming and his reward is with him. And, and I always say that's because his reward is him. All right, so anyway, we, we desire more of you. And we hope that, uh, that today as we look at uh, your word regarding Lent, that you'll um, open our eyes to, to think how you think and see how you see, and that you'll teach us how to draw near to you. Amen. So th- my first point today, I'm uh, going to do a little series that will be either two or three messages very short series for me, uh, on Lent. And uh, my first point I want to make is that Lent is scriptural. It's kind of funny uh, because of lack of uh, training in the church uh, about how to read scripture, how to interpret scripture, and so forth, how many people who are committed to God's word being true will say, well, this or that's not scriptural because they're reading the scripture in just uh, too unscriptural of a way and too uh, shallow of a way. Boy, I'm going to be kicking this all day. I'm going to have to get that back a little. Um, So uh, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, Psalm 119, 160 says the sum of, of thy word is truth. Uh, just because there's not a verse that says such and such a date is so and so's birthday doesn't mean that it's not true. Um, there are many concepts that are at, at the absolute heart and core and foundation of the Christian faith that are clearly described in the scriptures and clearly articulated in the scriptures. But there's no specific verse that says this. There's no verse that says the Trinity. In fact, the word Trinity uh, wasn't actually used in the church until about the second century. Uh, Was it origin? I always forget my church fathers. But uh, obviously, the, the, the concept of the Trinity is found in Genesis 1, and it uh, is throughout the Scripture. Uh, One of the great Trinitarian verses is in Matthew 3, when Jesus comes to John, uh, whose last name was the Baptist, no, uh, John the Baptist, to to be baptized, and John tries to to object, and he says, Lord, I need to be baptized by you, and Jesus says, permit it uh, for uh, for now, uh, for it's necessary for me to fulfill all righteousness, and um, so Jesus, uh, who is God incarnate, go, goes into the water and is baptized, and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, or in whom I uh, have much delight, is a, probably a better interpretation. 
great delight. And um, all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in that verse, uh, and all of them act in that verse and are revealed in that verse, but it doesn't use the word Trinity. So that, that's a huge important thing. So let's talk about why uh, am I going to insist that Lent is scriptural? The word Lent doesn't appear in the Bible, but we know there's Lent because you can't you can't uh, you can't redo something unless uh, you've already done it. And the Bible says to relent, and that God relented. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's not the reason it's scriptural, but um, God. God relented, so he must have relented in the first place. <laughs> no, um, this is great exit, Jesus. Um, so, um, recently I had a sad call from uh, a friend of mine who uh, has, we've been friends for, 48 years, that's a, longer than some of you have had some friends. And, uh, and uh, um, he uh, called to tell me that the tribulation is, has started in 2023 and that uh, Jesus was coming back in the year 2030. And he needed to send me a bunch of videos so I could be sure to know that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. And, uh, and, and the number of, and that there wasn't going to just be two Antichrists, or one Antichrist, but there were actually two. And the second one is already living in Jerusalem. And uh, I, uh, in the, I mostly, uh, those kind of conversations, uh, you know, then the Proverbs, it says, uh, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And uh, I think that one says, unless he, so that he won't be wise in his own sight. And then he says, and it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So, you know, um, there's a lot of arguments you should never get in. If you get in certain kinds of arguments, you're a fool. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, there's, there's uh, certain kind of people to uh, try to help them see truth or understand truth. Uh, is a fool's errand, and uh, why, why waste your time? So I mostly in that conversation for half an hour or so said, hmm, 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 oh, hmm, hmm. And uh, when I tried to talk, I tried to change the subject, so I said something about Lent, and uh, he proceeded to tell me Lent was not scriptural. And it's just uh, a religious thing that, that uh, the churches of the Antichrist tell us to do and so forth. So let's, uh, let's begin by understanding why Lent is scriptural. <laughs> um, in Romans 14, Paul gives us a whole chapter about how to deal with people like that. And uh, he basically tells you that it's not wise to offend a weaker brother. Uh, and, and he's clearly saying that people who don't eat or don't, and they observe this and don't observe that, and 
are, 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 are weaker and that we shouldn't offend their faith or cause them to lose their faith. Uh, sometimes it's just not worth it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have very uh, f- uh, fundamentalist, uh, ignorant uh, approaches to Scripture that don't really honor Scripture or take Scripture that seriously. And uh, only, uh, only uh, give us various, various modern interpretations of Scripture. You know, the whole idea of dispensational premillennialism and, and um, uh, this whole Jesus is coming back. And, you know, I've been hearing that since the 60s. People have been saying that kind of stuff since the late 1800s. Let me, let me just say, any idea or theology or doctrine that Christians didn't teach or hear of until after the America Civil War is, is, should be very suspect to you. Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. He didn't say, I'll build my church in the 20th century. And uh, the Christians are kind of on their own to think what, and I'm not going to guide them or give them insight or send my spirit for them to understand my ways or my word or my heart until the 1800s. You know, uh, so ideas like the rapture that was started by an Ohio-based cult called the Millerites uh, and was picked up by evangelicals about 40 years later that no, no Christian ever thought of for 1,900 years uh, should be suspect to you. Even if 95% of Bible-believing, so-called Bible-believing Christians believe that today. So in terms of, um, you know, I, I'm not going to dwell on Romans 14, but let, let's just look at verse 5 for a quick second, I I always have my Bible in my pocket these days. Um, let's see if I can get to it relatively quickly. There it is. All right. So I'm, I'm so old, i got to take off my glasses tree. In verse 5, he says, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So um, people who don't want to observe the church calendar and and who think that's some uh, thing that the Roman Catholics give us or so forth, uh, and of course, they, if it's Roman Catholic, it must be wrong. Uh, that's part of the evangelical mindset. Uh, that's fine, but it's not very scriptural. So the church calendar, here's how the church calendar developed. In, in the uh, first five books of the Bible, called, often called the Pentateuch, Pena meaning five two books, sometimes called the books of Moses. Uh, Jesus referred to the Pentateuch as Moses said, uh, and just calls it Moses or the, the teachings of Moses at times, things like that. Moses, um, I, I remember actually uh, teaching once on something that I quoted uh, 
from Deuteronomy and from Moses a few times. And uh, the person corrected me after church and said, you, you understand that the reason the Bible calls it the law of Moses was because it was Moses' idea. It wasn't God's law. It was Moses' law. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Jesus came to straighten that all out. I thought that was interesting. Um, so... Uh, the reason it's hard to make something foolproof is fools are just so ingenious. But uh, <laughs> um, so in, in uh, several places, uh, including Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, God in, uh, commands his people to observe certain days. A uh, good chapter on that, if, uh, if you want to put this in your notes, is Leviticus 23. And in Leviticus 23, God starts by uh, telling Israel about the observance of the Sabbath. Now, Christians uh, built on those ideas. They didn't abrogate them. They didn't say, oh, the Old Covenant's irrelevant. Because Paul t teaches us in Galatians that once a covenant is given, it's unalterable, Uh and, and so forth. And, and it, so what Christians did was take what the law was teaching. And Jesus said, don't, in Romans 5, he teaches us that he didn't come to abrogate or dismiss the law. But he came to put it into force. And the Greek actually means he came to empower it. He came to empower you to live it. Because the law was written on tablets of stone external to man, commanding man's uh, fallen, ungodly heart, and no one can do it. The law was given so that we could see that sin, as First John says, is lawlessness. And we are all hopelessly lawless. You know, uh, somebody will say, Brother so and so is a good brother, and I said, "Yeah, he's hopelessly lawless." No, I'm just—I uh, don't say. It. But uh, but the fact is, the law was given because sin is just so blinding, and sin is just so deceiving that people—the uh, greatest gift God can give you is to help bring start to bring you under conviction. John sixteen. In the midst of John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus says more about the parakletos, uh, translated in modern translations as helper. The old King James Version said comforter. Uh, but the, he's teaching us about the Holy Spirit. And one of the things he says in John 16, uh, verses 7 through 13, is he says the Holy Spirit will come to uh, convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, the, the deceitfulness of sin is so hardening that we can't see, the, none of us see even the tip of the iceberg of how bad our sin problem is. And the first thing God begins to do when he begins to draw you to Christ is he begins to convict you by the Holy Spirit to help us begin to see our need for a Savior. We, we don't need a little churching up. 
as the uh, Catholic nun suggested to the Blues Brothers in that fa famous uh, scene where she says, you boys need a little churching up. Uh, my wife and I use that joke on each other quite often. I think you need a little churching up. But a little churching up is, is worthless. What you need is convicted of your sin and rescued from it. Uh, the, the word for rescue appears throughout the New Testament many, many times. And it's in, interesting if you take, um, start with all the literal equivalence translations of the, uh, that are in English available today. That the Greek word is interpreted as rescue about 50% of the time and deliver about 50% of the time. Uh, and if you then go, go on to dynamic equivalence translations, they have the word translated as rescue about 50% of the time and deliver about 50% of the time. When I was a boy, uh, when I had a tendency to like certain books so much that I would read them maybe like 100 different times, you know, like two or three times a year. Oh, uh, there was one called Day of Glory, which was an hour-by-hour hour account of when the British left Boston for Le Lexington and Concord all the way till they got back to Boston. And, uh, you know, the first day of, of the War of Independence. I probably read that book at least 100 times. But one that I really liked was called The Knights the, the Dyke Broke. The night, the, the night the dikes broke. And it was about uh, in the 1950s when uh, a huge storm caused uh, some of the dikes in Holland and Netherlands to break. And, uh, of course, if you know anything about Holland and Netherlands, there are miles of, of farmland that they have reclaimed from the sea by pushing the dikes out further and further and further so the first five or ten miles as you come inland from, from the dikes, you're actually under sea level. You're below sea level. Sorry. I was afraid that would happen if I wore my jacket one. Um, and, um, of course, one night, uh, a huge storm caused some, some cracking in the dikes, and they broke. And uh, people, be, uh, of course, they had... For those days, the best you know, they had church bells and, and all kind of things for warnings. And people woke up to water coming into their uh, house. And uh, it was coming in so fast that most of them couldn't get out of the house. And so if they had bedrooms on the ground floor, they went to the bedrooms on the, the second floor. And, of course, the water continued to rise above that because, of course, the, the dikes, the sea level was higher than the roofs of their house. And so all of them had openings. The houses were built with openings to the attic, and they went to the attic. And then, of course, they uh, found whatever way they could to crack through the boards of the attic so they could uh, get out onto the rooftops. Now, is, as um, soon as the word went out that the dikes broke, the word w went to England, 
France, Switzerland, Italy. And virtually every helicopter and every boat in all those countries went to Holland as fast as they could. And as people were on the roof, the peaks of their roof, some people tried to see if a family member could swim to the barn to get the, the boats that they had. But the boats were underwater already. Uh, but what it really got down to, you're, you're on the roof of your house and the water's still rising. And either someone came in time or they didn't come in time. You got rescued or you drowned to death. And the Bible clearly teaches that's our sin situation. The rescuer is Christ, and either he grants you uh, repentance, as Romans 2, 4 says, the kindness of God uh, grants repentance. Jesus teaches no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Either you're appointed, you're elected, and therefore God will work effectively or effectually in theology it's a, he'll, to grant you the repentance to become a Christian or not. And uh, that's what the Bible basically depicts the human situation is. We are hopelessly in sin, and if you read Genesis 3 ever, you realize that as soon as uh, Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was try to hide their sin by making loincloths for themselves. And of course, plant, covering things with plants is always symbolic in the Bible of man's efforts religiously to save himself. And then they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And of course, when God said, Adam, where are you? It wasn't because God didn't know, but God in his grace knew that Adam didn't know anymore where he was. And so after the, the confrontation uh, where uh, Adam, uh, Eve blames uh, uh, the serpent and Adam blames uh, as all husbands have been doing ever since. First he blames his wife, and then he says, after he says the woman, he then shifts the blame to God. It says, the woman who thou hast given me. That's the problem. <laughs> and uh, and uh, blame shifting was born, and somehow all humans became expert blame shifters immediately. <laughs> the, if, you, if, any, if you've ever had the joy of raising kids, you know that they begin to learn a, a few words, and soon they are great blame shifters. Experts. That's why every kid should consider a, a career in law. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Uh, in any case, what Lent is all about, it's, Lent is, is uh, as God commanded his people to observe certain things. First was the Sabbath. 
Then there were three major festivals a year that they were to observe, which were all foreshadowings of the Christian calendar. And uh, each of them had two purposes that are very important. I'm not saying they only had two purposes, uh, but the two most important purposes were a catechism purpose, catechal, the word, the word cacao, or the word that we get catechism from, I forget how the Greek word said, cateco or something. I believe if I remember right, I didn't look this up again, but it appears six times in the New Testament. And the, the festivals were so that you're, you know, that, that God even says, when you're observing the Passover, for instance, and your son or daughter says to you, you know, Father, why do we do this? You teach them what the Lord did at Passover. So you teach the historical, biblically accurate, uh, redemptive historical acts of God to your children. And you, and you do that uh, according to God's church calendar that he started in to, to the Israelites. And all, all the uh, early church was doing in the first and second century when things like Easter and Christmas and, and uh, the church calendar began to emerge in the church, they were taking that idea from Scripture and applying it to the new historical revelation of redemption that God had done in Christ. And they were understanding that the Passover lamb, it had no ability to atone for your sins. It was a foreshadowing of the true Passover that Christ was and is. And likewise for all that. Now, but each of the second, the second reason for each of the festivals was they were to work sanctifying grace things into our character and our spirit. So like the Feast of Booths was that, you know, God, God knew that he was bringing them to a land of, of, of milk and honey, and they would have wonderful houses, and the houses would get better over the years, and they would add, you know, nice decorative things and, and creature comforts and eventually air conditioning and uh, <laughs> uh, and so forth uh, but it was to help us remember that we dwelt 40 years in the wilderness in tents the Israelites were intense very intense people and so um, it had a sanctifying effect in that it helped us humble ourselves because wealth and blessing from God have a uh, possible undesirable effect in being very seductive and, and ter- if we, especially if we allow our hearts to be turned toward the wealth and the comfort, creature comforts and the ease and to forget the Lord who gave them to us. You can, one of the great things as you see your kids grow up that happens with Christmas gifts and things like this is when they're very little, they're very excited about the gifts. The older they get and the wiser they get, the more they appreciate the giver. 
and the more you get to a point where I don't, I don't really care. Uh, you know what I what I delighted in as a father is, uh, especially as my kids gave gifts to each other, is how much wisdom and thought went into them, and how much if they really just gave a gift out of obligation, or if they really understood this is what this person wants. And, and, and it came out of relationship and deep understanding of that person. And, uh, you know, in our family, we had the great shirt Christmas and the great uh, book. Most, most years we had books, but it was interesting as the kids gave books to each other, they would give insightful things about theology and, and, and all sorts of other subjects. I remember the great crypto Christmas I, <laughs> 10 years ago. Or so I forget how many years ago, but they where they gave each other books about crypto, and then there was the uh, the thirty eight pistol Christmas, <laughs> where they gave each other guns and so forth, and uh, especially the older ones to the ones who weren't sixteen yet or whatever. Um, and so and uh, you know, um, and of course. A lot of times, a lot of thought about who that person is and what our relationship is went into the gifts. And so what God does in, the, in uh, observing, say, the, you know, the fe- Feast of First Fruits, the f- Feast of First Fruits has a catechal purpose. It tells us that there's going to be a true uh, First Fruits in Christ coming, and that God is the provider. He's the one who gives you jobs and abilities to make wealth and, and to harvest and, and so forth. And, so, and uh, it has a very sanctifying effect in that you acknowledge in first roots that it, that's why in your tithe you're not giving 10% to the Lord and the rest is yours. You're, the tithe represents the whole. You're saying, Lord, my very breath comes from you my very life, my ability to get up in the morning. If, if you don't hit the snooze con- alarm uh, 25 times and you actually get to work on time and you don't get fired for being tardy, it's because God's grace has worked in your life. I got fired from the first four jobs I had that were, like I had all kinds of paper routes and mowing lawns and stuff, but... But I began to sell clothes in a, in a very fancy men's clothing store, ties and shirts and all that, when I was 14. And I eventually got fired from that job because uh, I, I was dependent on uh, the, guy, the guy who helped me get the job, was, uh, gave me rides, and he always insisted that we go smoke pot for an hour or two before we get to work. And... Uh, and then he and I would say, well, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. And he'd say, well, he doesn't care. It's okay. As long as we're in the ballpark or whatever. Well, apparently he did care because <laughs> we lost that job. And um, so um, Lent in particular is uh, 40 days for a reason because 40 days is how long Jesus fasted in the wilderness. Forty years was symbolic of that in the, in the Israelites traveling in the wilderness. 
And there's all kind of 40-day observances and fast and so forth throughout the Bible. And it's a, uh, it's a season for us to prepare our hearts for, un- for celebrating again the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. Because we, we human beings are so short-sighted and we're so shallow and we become so calloused easily that we, uh, you know, we have uh, Resurrection Sunday and we kind of do it flippant. Oh, you know, the Lord is risen. And there was the Lord is risen indeed. I'm not against that. But uh, how much did you, uh, you say if you're reading John 19 or whatever, and you, how much when you enter into, uh, Stephen, make sure we redistribute. There's a, a sheet I did that has all the uh, Lent verses and the Holy Week verses and so forth. That Make sure we get that out to everybody in the emails this week. Uh, again, and uh, you know, how much does it, how much do we get to a place where if we think about the the betrayal of Christ or the the hyped up trial? Uh, if, you ne- if you never read a book called Who Moved the Stone, it's uh, written by a British journalist who was also a, an attorney. And it's an account, uh, it's very, not very long, it's an easy book to read, but it's an account of how the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, in the name of the Mosaic Law, broke about a hundred Mosaic Laws in the sham trial of Christ. And uh, it, will, it will help you see the total depravity, it may, man does people aren't lost because they just don't know the truth. They're lost because they want to be lost. Because they're running from the truth. Because they, if, when you talk to students on campus these days, the first thing you notice is they've already made up their mind to hate Christ and reject Christ, and they don't know any of the facts. I used to do a lecture at all the campuses every every year on the fact that the the uh, resurrection of Christ is historically verifiable it can be proven in a court of law it's one of the most established facts in the history of mankind people don't reject Christ for the lack of evidence that's why J- Jesus says i think it's Luke 16 where they uh, they're saying that you know lord send somebody to warn my brother not in and so forth and he goes they have moses in the scriptures if they won't repent from that neither will they repent if someone rises from the dead and i love uh nt you know nt Wright has a book on that subject that's about like that fat around 1300 pages i think if i remember um josh mcdowell has you know uh, what's what's his little one kind of more than a carpenter, yeah. And of course, uh, there's Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. And there's around 100 such really good books. But the first thing you'll find out is that people can read those books and they still won't become a Christian. The, you know, in, in Matthew, Jesus uh, spends a whole chapter saying, woe are you, Capernaum, and, 
and so forth because uh, he says if the miracles had been done in, in uh, Tyre and Sidon or Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Miracles don't uh, necessarily get people to repent. In fact, one of the saddest, uh, you know, by the way, if you haven't had a lot of sadness in your life, you probably haven't received Christ. Um, one of the saddest, uh, because one, one of the loving things God is doing for you, one of the gifts he gives you, is the uh, journey to enter into his sufferings. You can't know him if you haven't suffered with him and for him. That's why in the book of Acts, the, the disciples are, the, you know, when they get uh, arrested and warned not to speak and, and flogged and stuff, they, you know, they rejoice that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. It's a great joy dinner. And uh, but, you know, uh, um, By, by the Lord's help and by the grace of God, when I was 17 years old and, and I was first starting out with the Lord, uh, my dear sainted mother taught me how to cast out demons. And uh, not only did I go through deliverance about four times the first year I was a Christian, and I don't think I would have quit drugs or any of that without deliverance and the baptism in the Spirit. I really don't. Um, it, I quit smoking pot shortly after the demon of marijuana was cast out of me and I was unconscious and the ladies who cast it out of me told me that it spoke out of my mouth in a gruff different voice and said I'm not coming out I'm king of Greg's life and which they answered you're not king of Greg's life Jesus is king of Greg's life and I had become a Christian and I had gotten to the point where I had gone two and three days sometimes without smoking pot which you know but I was in need of a uh, of an infusion of God's power and grace. And after I got delivered from demons, I quit smoking pot altogether. And in fact, God answered the prayer that he had given me. You know, a lot of times the prayers that God answers are the ones he gave you to pray. First John 5, 14, 15. If we pray anything according to his will, uh, we know we'll be like him. I'm not going to get to my message today. Am I? But uh, the... the uh, um, the, the fact is, I, I had prayed, God, change my heart about this because I'll never quit. And, and I, I could bore you with longer stories about how God really did change my heart against it. And, uh, and, and against just the whole culture uh, that, of, of that. So let me, let me uh, quickly give us a few things here about Lent. Lent is, is a time to, of self-examination. Apart from God's grace, people are not good self-examiners. I have seen some people who are really poor at self-examination. Um, one of the reasons we need Christian community is... Your brother or sister is a, is a, if you'll receive them, is an aid to better self-examination. And all of us need are terrible 
terrible blame shifters and excuse makers and rationalizers. And we don't even, sin is so deceiving, we don't even know to, uh, what to look for. But Scripture, that's why, you know, James tells us that the person who looks at Scripture and doesn't do it is like the man who looks in the mirror. Part of the function of Lent is to use Scripture to look in the mirror better. Because we all think we're way more spiritual and more, more mature than we are. Self-deception is one of the great themes of the of the scriptures, but especially the New Testament, and especially the epistles like Jude, James, First John, they they focus on how to come out of self deception. When you're self deceived, no, you don't take people's counsel. No one can tell you because you know what the Lord is saying all the time. Uh, Lent is a time to prepare our hearts to humble ourselves so that when we think of the things of, of Holy Week, when we think of, of Monday, Thursday, or the Lord's Supper, uh, and so forth, when we think about the trial of Christ, when we think about the crucifixion, we, we come a little bit closer to not totally seeing it too shallow by God's help. If you've, uh, if you've not had the experience of uh, reading in the Gospels and reading the, the, you know, the, the trial or the betrayal, and, and if you haven't broken down just utterly weeping, you haven't come very far yet in the Lord, really. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that to cry out to God to open your eyes. You shouldn't be able to read those chapters of Scripture without just totally breaking up. That's why you, you got to get some times where you read the, uh, read all the historical chapters of Lent and, and of course, Psalm 22 and, and uh, Psalm 51 and all, and all the, the seven penitential psalms and so forth. And, of course, the gospel accounts uh, of, of, uh, of Holy Week and so forth. But, but do it with your cell phone turned off, really. Do, do it with electronic distractions turned off. Put your kids to bed <laughs> and uh, get them asleep. Husbands and wives, one of the things you should do, husbands, put the kids to bed and, and, and take care of them. Let your wife go somewhere where she can be with the Lord and read that stuff with nobody, nobody bothering her and vice versa. One of the great things you should do in marriage is give each other time to draw near to God. Humble yourself. Get rid of self-righteousness uh, and the spirit of the Pharisees and uh, thinking you... You know, like if you don't like certain other Christians because they just don't measure up to like, you know, then you're very deceived. Just very deceived. I'm always amazed at how critical some Christians are of, of other Christians. And you know what? I, I'm a lousy Christian. 
and uh, I need Lent. Um, if you could, Josiah, put up, uh, put up that, the book that I mentioned to you again this morning. I've, I've been doing a couple Lenten devotionals. One of them is, is from an Eastern Orthodox guy that I'm not going to tell you too much about for time's sake. But I've been reading uh, Paul David Tripp. He's more Western, Reformed, um, kind of evangelical, Reformed. Uh, he's famous for his books on Christian counseling. I've, this is my third book I've read by him. Uh, and it's really good. It's a daily, it's a daily devotional for Lent. And... Uh, but it, 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 we, we just don't have much of a doctrine in our day and age. Of, in fact, I'm, I'm just going to close by reading a couple of the scriptures that I had. Uh, let, let's turn to James chapter 4. Where did I put my, there it is, my Bible. People are always texting me. Um. Let's get to uh, Matthew, Mark, James. Okay, there we go. Um, let's start in uh, verse 6. But he, speaking of God, gives a greater grace. Therefore it said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes when things are going difficult in your life, you need to think, is that why? Sometimes uh, it can, when you're, you think your boss is difficult or your wife is difficult or your kids are difficult, sometimes God is actually trying to resist you. That's not, that's not good. Pro, I, you know, that won't get me a church as big as, uh, who's that one guy, live your best life now? What's it? Oh, yeah, Joel, no one's going to buy your books if you read this verse. <laughs> but, uh, but there it is. It's right in my Bible. Wow. It's in there. Like Prego. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want to draw near to God? Spend a season, like Lent, asking God daily, Help me learn how to humble myself. Help me see my pride because pride is very deceiving. Pride will cause you to be a great pitchfork Christian. A pitchfork Christian is when you're hearing a message like this and you're like, sure hope my husband's hearing this. <laughs> sure hope my roommate's. I hope Matt Fortner's hearing this. <laughs> you know, instead of, uh, instead of, I, Am I hearing this? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Do you have too much trouble from the devil in your life? Let's first start with, our, am I really submitted to God? If you want to know, ask your spouse. <laughs> no, <laughs> they'll tell you. Ask your mother. <laughs> No, just kidding. Not really. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Are you, are you in a dry season? 
individually, corporately, as a family? Am, am I really rending my heart and not my garments? Am I really drawing near to God? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, the reason I, uh, Paul David Tripp's book is good, and some of the, it'll help you see where you're double-minded. And the double-minded man is unstable in all our ways. Rejoice and, and say, praise the Lord, and confess positive. No, no, I'm sorry, I misread that. Be miserable. Have you ever had a doctrine like it's good to spend some time being miserable before the Lord? Because we're blind, wretched, stupid, and naked, and so forth. Be miserable and mourn and weep. This would not sell in American churches. This will not get like 16 million hits. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Now, I'm not saying that this verse applies to every minute of every day. But the reason the church developed things like Lent is we need seasons like this. There are times, I, I remember, uh, of course, a lot of you know that I left the ministry in 1991 because of my sin. And I would say that I had to do this for months before the certain hardnesses of heart began to be broken out of me. I, I, I can remember mowing my lawn and weeping at my sin. I have you ever have you ever had done that? I would suggest that you haven't come very far in the Lord if you've never been miserable, mourn and wept, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of God and He will exalt you. You know, I I love sports. But sports are about self-exaltation. And, and when uh, someone is uh, successful in sports and they're actually humble, I really love to see that. It does happen. But you won't find it. Never mind. I won't give you the answer. I was going to name a few athletes. That, you know, I used to have a teaching that I called the Muhammad Ali principle because... <laughs> Muhammad Ali was quick to tell you that he was the greatest. Do not speak against one another, etc. Whoever speaks against his brother or sister. Boy, if, if the church ever did that, there'd be major revival breakout. So anyway... Um, your outline that I didn't get to is something we've taught on. I, I probably pull this out and do this every five years or so, but uh, I've made some changes in it. But it has eight statements that define repentance. And repentance is a daily foundation. In Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it lists six foundations of the faith, one of which is repentance from dead works. You need to repent every day. 
That's why you teach your children to spend time in prayer before they hit their head hits the pillow. You know, David, David said that he wouldn't give sleep to his eyes or slumber to his eyelids until he found a place for the... Do you, do, you, do you get into the presence of God before you go to bed? Now, what I did here is, is I upgraded this a little bit by adding color. So the red is for the word repent. Uh, it's defined at the top. And uh, there's one statement that's in bold print underlined in red is repentance makes room for Jesus' presence in our life. Ask yourself, do I have as much of Jesus' presence in my daily life as I desire? If not, repent. Repenting under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and Scripture is a very different thing than condemnation. And I ask yourself, could I give, if, if, uh, if I were to say, I'll pick on Robbie since he's right there. If I were to say, Robbie, this is Brother Joe that I've you know, just came to Christ. I need you to spend an hour teaching him the difference between repentance and, and condemnation, conviction and condemnation. Could you do that biblically and accurately? If you can't, you're not going to go get past. Uh, you're not going to get to first base in the Christian life. That's a huge difference. Repentance from dead works is one of the foundations of what it means is that you need to get started with the Lord. How often do you have thoughts that you think you're better than other people, uh, uh, other Christians or non-Christians? It, we're, Christians are subject to both of those. How harsh are you in your heart when you have an unbeliever in your life uh, or whatever and that you have to work with or whatever? And uh, how much grace in your is in your heart? And grace is not accepting their lostness or their bad behaviors or so forth, but it's the same posture God took toward yours. So we're going to end there because we got to, you got about five minutes to go to the bathroom. Um, I, I chose um, about two-thirds of the verses in the New Testament. I always use a rule that, um, that I don't um, go more than what I can fit on front and back of a page. So there's other verses that talk about repentance in the New Testament that I couldn't fit on this page. I did mix it up a little. There's some ones that aren't the same as um, others. And then in the light blueprint, I'm saying that that verse illustrates the things. If you go back to that chapter, right under the eight uh, definitions of repentance, there's a paragraph about repentance. Uh, repentance, not, uh, it, let's see. Notice the context of each verse. These include preparation for the arrival of Christ. That was a big emphasis in the New Testament. The, the things that Jesus taught at the beginning, the first thing he ever said, Matthew 4, 17, in his ministry, was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not the first thing that Joel Olstein said. Uh, he, 
Jesus didn't say, live your best life now. Uh, Nor did he take up an offering uh, and tell you you'd be blessed if he gave more money. Uh, When Jesus commissions the kingdom gospel to his disciples, he teaches them to teach repent. And that's why you'll see that it's the emphasis of of the early church. Repentance makes room for the presence of Jesus. Then use this tool. If you just don't go through, if you don't use this again this week, you're really wasting my time and yours and God's. I mean, you're just, it's just, you're just missing the mark. Read these verses about repentance. It's part of what Lent's about. Lent, Lent, the prerequisites for repentance, humble yourself, confess your sins. These are prerequisites to repent. And uh, and so forth. Uh, please encourage those who missed this morning to uh, watch the video because there's there's obviously a lot of our good friends and brethren that are not here. They had a date with CD Postropedi. So anyway, uh, let's let's uh, go to the bathroom, what get some coffee, whatever. Get back here and let's start to worship in the few minutes.